Hello, Sopranos podcast fans. It's Chris D'Amato. And Lily D'Amato. And Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And I just wanted to reach out uh, about something a little interesting before we get to our regularly scheduled episode this week. But uh, normally we don't comment on politics or world events, and we're not going to get into specifics here. But for those of you who are following what's going on in Iran right now, uh, I wanted to just touch down quickly because one of our biggest fans on the show, a guy, a man by the name of Reza, or Reza, maybe I'm not saying that right, but he messages us all the time. He's a big fan of the show. He's always complimentary. He really loves Paul. He calls in with advice and feedback. He's just a big fan, and he's uh, really caught up in this mess going on in Iran right now. They're cutting out internet, and there's protests, and people are getting killed. It, uh, so we, I just wanted to extend on behalf of the Surprise Podcast and uh, our other hosts here, just a warm, warm, warm feelings and good energy to our friend in Iran, who is uh, one of the biggest fans of our show. Yeah, good luck, man. We're thinking of you. Reza, this is Paul. Um, thank you for uh, your love for the show and for us. We wouldn't be here without our fans, and uh, we're with you. That's it, man. Thank you. Good luck. And to the rest of you, enjoy this week's episode of The Sopranos Podcast. Season four, man. Season four is at a rolling boil at this point. We are back for season four, episode 11, Seance. Sometimes courage isn't a value. That's a quote from Janice Soprano in season four, episode 11 of The Sopranos entitled, Calling All Cars. Got another long list of writers here, very collaborative back half of this season. Teleplay by David Chase, Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, David Flabati, I hope I'm saying that right. Story by David Chase, Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, and Terrence Winter. Directed by Tim Van Patten. Seance. This is what we're calling this episode, rightfully so. There are uh, many of these uh, Sopranos episodes now in in the can that confirm the supernatural we're going to talk about that but this is uh another one that left me feeling very eerie very off-put and also excited for what's set to be quite a raucous last two episodes i'm chris d'amato i'm paul mancini and i'm jordan hugh so yeah calling all cars guys what did you think of this one uh, as, as a follow-up to strong silent type as a last step up to the ledge before the end of season four and just as an episode in and of itself. So I think it's a wildly good episode. I I love, I loved it. I deeply love this episode. I do think it is a very bizarre follow-up to the strong silent type. Uh, Only in this, only in this, the strong silent type really puts out these mortal threats to Tony's existence, right? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of things that could happen to Tony that are very bad. And this follow-up episode which is wonderful i can't wait to talk about all the ins and outs of this terrific episode this episode follows up on those mortal threats to tony but really backs off of them in favor of recentering the episode around uh janice and bobby and then tony in terms of what he's dealing with internally that doesn't mean the new york plot's not touched on it is and significantly but the episode is much more concerned with kind of the, I, I don't even know what to say, the, the symbolic nature within the show itself. We have two amazing dream sequences in this episode that are so rich. 
Um, some of my favorites. Yeah. And then we have some just some great stuff with Janice and Bobby. And I, I, it's a, just a very rich, very textured episode. But yeah, kind of a bizarre episode 11. Sopranos has done this before where it's like they're turning up, they're turning up the heat, they're turning up the heat. And then they just kind of pause and they say, well, but look over here. And this is <laughs> one of those, you know. Mm. Very well said. I agree with Jordan that this episode is a bit different. Usually in this point in a season, I'm ready for the everything to get ratcheted up and keep ratcheting up. And here instead, I have a sense that things are kind of falling apart, in ter- particularly in terms of the business, with everything with New York. I don't have a specific sense of what the threat is, but something is looming. Of course, Tony foregoing Melfi's help and Bobby accepting Janice's help. That seems like a falling apart to me. So it, ge- it gives me a different sense instead of, as Jordan mentioned, these mortal threats that would make me sort of sit up straight. I'm not sitting back because I'm uninterested. I'm sitting back because I have this sense that things are generally coming unglued and I'm not, I'm not sure where we'll go. But as Jordan also stated, I remain quite intrigued. I want to know what's going to happen next qu- quite desperately. If you remember the last five minutes following the dream sequence, they didn't make me feel good. But of course, I have to know what's going to happen next. So it's a tribute to the acting and the storytelling here. It's really well done. I do like that it pumps the brakes a little bit. And we we're digging into some of where these characters are. And I think particularly the episode is about these two troubled guys, Bobby and Tony, um, in these particular moments in their life. One of them, again, as I said, foregoing the help of a therapist that I think he really needs. The other one accepting the help of a soprano, which he really doesn't need. So I think there's something else to this episode where the dead and what they're saying to us, if they have anything to say to us, I'm not a believer in the supernatural, but once again, we have to come back to this show is haunted. Even in these episodes where there's something supernatural and the characters dismiss it, it seems to be there. Why? What is this about? We, so I, I'm, I, I agree with Jordan. I'm intrigued by this. I'm delighted to watch it again and to talk about it with you guys. I love that breakdown, Paul. I think, I, I really in particular like the idea that whereas previous seasons have, particularly season one, whereas other seasons have put Tony in almost an underdog role where a lot, uh, a lot of things are holding him down. Season four has an interesting vibe where Tony is at the zenith of his power. Really uh, at the beginning of season four, he's cemented, he's fully cemented himself. The stuff with junior and Livia from season one is fully behind him. The Ralphie situation has been taken care of. His his family is fully staffed, right? Everybody's where they should be doing what they should be doing. And as the season goes on, things are crumbling out from underneath him. Carmela offers that ominous line in episode one, everything comes to an end. And that is permeating this. There's almost a, uh, a rising damp in the foundation of the entire Soprano organization, a crumbling of the foundation. Very good, very good, very good. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm excited to break this one down, too. Let's start with this first dream sequence. Open up on the rosary. No accidental music choice here. Tears of a clown. Uh, Tony, of course, referred to himself recently as the sad clown. I think that's meant to at least evoke that initial thought immediate association they're driving in an old cadillac that we find out in the subsequent therapy scene was johnny boy's cadillac tony's father we have ralph in the front seat 
once with hair, then without, and a caterpillar on the back of his bald head, really striking green caterpillar. To Tony's left is Gloria and then Svetlana, Carmela driving the car. We're going to talk about what is elicited in the next scene, but just initial thoughts on how this looked and felt as a way to start an episode. The one thing I will say to kick us off is Paul mentioned this in, uh, I think it was our Everybody Hurts episode where we had that Gloria Trillo dream that sometimes the Sopranos will fool you into thinking that you're not in a dream and then will whop you over the head with it. But this one was a dream from moment one. Very clear that this is (laughs) where it's it's immediately surreal. Thoughts on this dream? Uh, I'm initially uh, even more uneasy with this dream sequence because on the surface, it actually seems easy to interpret. Meaning, I think it's not. <laughs> right. right. Meaning, I think it's it's much more complicated than, uh, than I I I, I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, I'm I'm a little flustered. Um, I think this is a beautiful dream sequence. I love that we're in his father's car. He's probably sitting where he sat as a boy, right? When as mm. a as a child, you have Carmela driving the car, which is important because in real life, Carmela is asserting her independence more. In fact, we see her at first with the longer hair, and then the next time we cut back to her, she has her new short haircut, which, remember, is something that she got sort of without consulting Tony or having a conversation about that. Mm. Um, he had earlier alluded to, like, oh, we thought we would we would talk about that before he got a haircut, right? Then we have Ralph next to her, who is is now dead in real life. He's got the caterpillar crawling on his head. Disgusting, right? And then we have, it turns into a butterfly, Okay, in the subsequent therapy scene, Melfi asks, like, how's your friend, Tony corrects her associate, has he undergone a change? Well, yeah, the change is that he's dead now, but the change can't just be that he's dead. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's too Mm. surface. That's too surface an interpretation of what's going on here. And then seated next to Tony in the backseat, he has at first Gloria, of course, asking if he wants to take this thing for a test drive. Too late for that, bud. Um, and and then she becomes Svetlana. And the again, the surface initial simplistic interpretation is just like, okay, Tony feels like he's not in control because when you're sitting in the back of a car in the passenger seat in the little boy's spot, you're not in control of that car. The mm. people in the front are the ones that are in control, specifically the people driving. So I take this as maybe partly Tony's lack of agency and he wants to be able to assert control over these people, but they seem to be totally out of his control. That's my only reading on this initially. But again, this is such an insidious dream because I know it goes layers and layers below that. I, I can't quite get there yet, but I, I really like it. I feel you. I feel much the same way. And I really think that a lot of what you said is supported also by the way Tony describes feeling hot and a little claustrophobic in the car because Again, even even the temperature is stifling in here. Did you uh, have something, Paul? Or? Only that the vibe of the dream, as you mentioned, it's hot, it's uncomfortable, there's a lack of control, seems like a big element here. I think Tony's dealing with a lot. It's not, as Jordan said, some of it seems like almost deceptively simple, that we, we, we should dig probably a bit more. Um, not only Gloria being there, but Svetlana being there will also probably inform, as the story goes on here, Tony questioning his therapy, which 
uh, Svetlana articulated in the last episode about Americans going to therapy and bitching about what she perceived as small problems. Of course, Ralphie and the transformation, um, to me, also fairly simple. This is some level of guilt about and trauma about having killed Ralphie. Melfi, who I'm going to take to task in, in this episode, uh, does show how keen she really is, actually, in the last episode when Tony was blubbering about Pyomai. Melfi said to him, you haven't mourned in this way for people. And sure enough, deep down somewhere, Tony is dealing with the fact that he was traumatized, I think, by everything with Ralph. He's dealing with these feelings. He's not going to be able to to say it outright because of this stupid arrangement they have in therapy where they don't talk about things specifically and then they're like wondering why it stalled out. But yeah, this dream is very unsettling, almost as unsettling as the next one. And uh, it set, it it sets up ultimately Tony leaving therapy. It's also a really good indication of why he really should be in therapy, remain in therapy, be talking to somebody without these restrictions that hamstring the process. Mm. Yeah. It, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I no, I was going to move on. So if you have something. Oh, to add. Uh, two things, I think. Uh, one comes from the subsequent therapy sequence where the question of the destination of the car is brought up and Tony kind of shrugs it off and says, I don't know where we're going, you know, nowhere, I guess. And this idea of a journey to nowhere has been brought up before, specifically by Gloria. Mm. So perhaps these four slash 4.5 people are heading to a nowhere destination, which actually harkens back to the kind of nihilism that's typically brought into association with our narrative via Olivia, Olivia rather. Uh, so, so there's that. She's kind of there. We have to, again, I think pay attention to the positioning in this car. Carmel is driving something Johnny never would have stood for, which to me puts her in like the fatherly position of control and independence and the one who's asserting control. She's the driver. Ralphie's in the passenger front seat, which is, uh, I don't know. Tony had said at one point, you know, wives go in the back, but I don't know. I think, I feel like a lot of us growing up in the car, that was your mom's seat, wasn't it? And then this is a bit of a reach, but Ralph is appearing here without his wig, right? Without his disguise. He's bald. He seems sort of at peace in death. Um, is he no longer forced to put up the front of extraordinary masculinity? Can he now occupy the feminine space in the front seat? Is his transformation from caterpillar to butterfly uh, now that he does not have to operate in the masculine space and be like the quote unquote alpha male? Is he now some kind of gentler creature in the afterlife? Mm -hmm. The other transformation is occurring in the back seat. We have Gloria, who is a more fragile woman that reminds Tony of his mother transforms into Svetlana, who is a woman who is now kind of like an idealized vision for Tony, something he wants to become himself. So there's this concept or this idea of transformation in this dream as well. Um, so even though the car is not progressing towards the destination, the passengers themselves are evolving in some way. Carmela's haircut changes from her more domesticated, longer haircut to her shorter haircut. It's like everyone's evolving around Tony. They're changing. Gloria's becoming Svetlana. Ralphie's becoming a butterfly. Carmela's becoming a free woman. And he's not doing anything. He's just mm. sitting there helpless. It's like everything else is moving around him. It, it, it again, all just kind of points to this, this lack of control as everything changes around him. And we know that Tony just doesn't deal with change well. Mm. Excellent. I don't have any answers 
But it seems to me that what Jordan is laying out here, a number of things, are the right questions. But Melfi can only put these questions to Tony. If he doesn't want to dig deeper, if he doesn't want to change, then the therapy is going to stay in this place. People call it plateauing in therapy, that it, it is exactly what it sounds like, that you've reached this plane and maybe it's somewhat comfortable and you don't want to go any deeper. It will surprise no one to know that what's usually happening is the patient is afraid to go to another place. Um, Melfi, I think, actually has been pushing Tony this season on a few of these fronts. He doesn't want to go there. And this episode, he decides that he's done for the moment. Yeah. Guys, excellent breakdown. Uh, it's, it's, this dream is more mysterious than usual for the Sopranos. I have more thoughts on that too, that I want to connect it with the dream we get later on, but very good breakdown boys. I really like that. Another last note, and then we'll move on with the rest of the episode, but the sound design in the stream is really crazy too. The radio shifting, even the radio station can't be static and on the, uh, the old song that Tony might've actually listened to at some point in this car, given the time period that can't, you know, we hear European sirens, they're shouting, there's explosions. There's all kinds of very bizarre, chaotic noise, but the actual scenery around the car is desert, basically just a, a plane as far as the eye can see, which suggests the chaotic monotony of the lifestyle that Tony lives where it's life or death. And that's the day in and day out. It's, very fascinating stuff. I think if you, if the three of us really wanted to uh, tug on each other, we could uh, go on about this dream for another half hour. But let's move you on. Can, to uh, the... You can tug on me later, Chris, if you want. Well, that's uh, that's another podcast idea, perhaps. We'll okay. talk about that. Uh, <laughs> we go to the, the therapy immediately after this. Paul mentioned he's going to take Melfi to task. I'm interested to hear what he has to say, but I have I have to just voice an opinion here that. Uh, all the terrible things Tony does. Sometimes we find him lovable. Sometimes we hate him. Uh, I really get just viscerally upset when Tony degrades Melfi's abilities or the therapy itself. That always really gets to me when Tony just disrespects the work Melfi has put into this relationship to this therapeutic process and just dismisses it, going nowhere, kind of like this therapy, he says. And then when she tries to elicit the meaning of the dream, Tony gets frustrated. Can't you just tell me what the fucking thing means? To us, we go through this exercise every time, which is very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. Like, he 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 doesn't get it yet that he thinks Melfi is sitting back there with a dream analysis book, uh, you know, ready to pluck stuff out. But if you're, you know, I've done the dream analysis thing with therapists. They don't know what it means. They, as Melfi describes, the meaning is elicited through conversation. And Tony just doesn't have the patience for it. He's wiping sweat. He's fidgeting. Well, he's behaving very much in the way that he would have in the dream. Mm -hmm. He's behaving like a little boy who's hot and uncomfortable and not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And he gives the husband's in the front, wives in the back and talks about makes a little joke about putting him off in this little skunk car <laughs> and Melfi doesn't laugh. I, I, I do like Tony's line. Jesus this have to be like a cancer hospital in here. <laughs> Dreams are wishes. Tony's complaining about his impulse control, which leads him to make mistakes at his work. That might tie into some level of regret about Ralphie. Not that he thinks he did the wrong thing and killing him necessarily, but it's bad for business. Uh, so 
Yeah, he could have bought a Ferrari with the money he dropped in the year. It's been four years. I've been a good sport and gives the signal for time. It's a great scene. It's extremely well acted, but I really feel for Melfi here. She's fighting. She's fighting for, for, for this. And Tony is really trying his hardest to give up. Yes, I think I feel for both of them in a way, but as is on the case, I identify with Tony and not in a way that I'm particularly proud of um, because I've having been in therapy and often in the, uh, and sometimes anyway, in this plateauing space and not really wanting to recognize that it's because I'm not ready to go there. I'm yeah. not ready to open up, to be vulnerable. I feel for Melfi because... I do think that she is genuinely engaged with this. She's trying to help him. But I think also both of them have brought the therapy to this point. I, I mean, I don't. I actually don't think that anybody should have the right to be surprised. So if you want me to delve into that, I'm happy to. Yeah. I want you guys to envision that a guy comes into a therapist's office, not in the late 90s, but in the mid-1970s. And his life in many other ways, similar maybe to Tony's, but he's not a gangster. He's just trying to live a normal life with his family, his wife and kids. But in the late 1960s, he got drafted by the army and went to Vietnam. And so because this guy says, I'm, I don't know, something ridiculous, like I'm a soldier and I follow codes and I can't talk to you about anything. They agree to talk about everything leading up to the war, everything after the war, nothing about the war itself. Then the therapy stalls out. Would anybody... Anybody listening to this podcast not get why? Or right. is it because they're not willing to talk about the things that traumatized him yeah. that he saw in the war, that he experienced in the war, and probably most importantly, the things that traumatized him that he did in the war? Tony will later say, where does all this cock-sucking dream interpretation get me? Well, in part, the reason that dream interpretation is a blowjob is because you see Ralphie in the front seat and you killed this guy in a rage over a horse and you can't talk about it. And <laughs> Melfi has agreed, like, I know our deal. We don't go there. So, yeah, it's going to hit a wall. Yeah. In spite of how, in spite of the courage that Tony has shown, in spite of how keen sure. and really good at what she does, Mel Melfi is, it's come to this point. So, And that's a, that's a very fair breakdown, Paul. I, I actually can see what you're saying there. This is now a pattern that's developed and it goes back even to big pussy when he murdered his best friend and couldn't talk about it in his therapy. That's a recipe for never getting anywhere. And here we are two seasons, several years later in the Sopranos universe, and we're hitting the same wall. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I did also have a thought during this scene, which was related to, uh, well sort of exactly what Paul is saying it's like I get trapped sort of right because the truth is he actually can't really disclose a lot of this stuff right he would be incriminating himself and I guess uh, at in some level in some way Melfi would have to report that right because if he really did talk about these things he he could be arrested I guess right is that is that part of it so here's the interesting thing and this is based on my personal experience and God, I've never killed anybody for the love of God before I say what I'm about to say, but I have had this, this conversation with therapists about things you've done previously versus the problem with Tony is he's part of an ongoing criminal enterprise. Mm -hmm. You could say to a therapist, 
hey, you know, 10 years ago, I actually murdered somebody and I never went to jail for it. And that they do not have a mandatory reporting on that. The only time a therapist has to do a mandatory report, I believe, and, and if someone out there is an expert in this and wants to correct me, please. But I think the only time a therapist has to go to the authorities is in the situation of some kind of sexual or physical abuse of a child mm-hmm. or somebody is in, in, about to be in danger. You believe that your client is going to go hurt somebody or themselves. That's when they have to step in. So Tony may be able to talk about some of this stuff if he had some kind of sign or commitment that this was going to come to an end or that it was somewhere in the past. He can talk about past misdeeds, but the fact that he's in an ongoing criminal enterprise and could be brought before a jury at any point if the feds get enough on him and they could subpoena Melfi under the right circumstances, he does have to be careful. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's kind of like the show's most obvious uh, problem from the beginning is that his going to therapy is a huge liability. He's trying to so hard to hide it yeah. in, the, in the first season and a half or two seasons, whatever it is, before the pussy thing. So before yeah. the end of season two. And now it seems like that has kind of come back into play of just like, well, it, it's I think it's a little bit of both, right? It's mostly that he's unwilling to talk about these things, but there is at least part of it where it's like he can't talk about some of these things. Yeah. Some of it, some, some of that. Sure. Moving on to our, I guess I would call it our B plot for this episode. Bobby is picking up Sophia from her softball game and has a cake in the back of the car. Oh, my heart breaks for Bobby. This is so sad. He buries the cake at Karen's grave and says to her, I wrote the quote down. I'd be with you now if it weren't for the kids. Brutal, brutal. He's still gutted over this. It's not clear exactly how much time has passed since Karen's death, but I I, I tend to believe that each season for the most part is at least maybe about a year in time, give or take. So it's been, it's been a while and this is still pretty, uh, if this is a daily feeling for Bobby, this is still pretty weighing on him very heavily. This loss. There's, there's no way that that scene doesn't contend as my favorite food moment of season four. By the time we get to the retrospective. (laughs) (laughs) Cut to New York. This is, the third thread going on, and this one has been weaving the last couple of episodes, building to this point. Right. This, this is the this, this is the biggest pickup from Strong Silent Type. Is this? Yeah. Right. This this situation where Paulie tipped off Johnny about the HUD scam with Zelman, and they want in on it. They're having a sit down here. They can't come to an agreement, and Tony gets up and leaves, but not before insinuating that. Carmine and Johnny had something to do with Ralph. Very good liar here. I thought it was actually pretty convincing. Uh, so that that continues to escalate. Cut to Janice without back steakhouse. Uh, <laughs> more uh, more therapy heavy episodes with rare meat involved. Daddy likes his steak still mooing. They're mm-hmm. they're enjoying. Yep. yep, they're enjoying the outback. And uh, Bobby walks out, gets up, and walks out. And when Janice follows him into the bedroom, they have a conversation. It's their 14th anniversary, Bobby and Karen. And he's sad about it. He goes to the grave every day. Janice wishes she knew the sides alone were $30. (laughs) Jesus. Great delivery on that line, right? 
yeah exactly she's wonderful we've we've talked about her uh, oh the best the best yeah she she's she's the actress is good the actress the character is uh but she horrifying. <laughs> the character is horrifying <laughs> yeah i did said sorrow janice mentioned something about losing both her parents both parents that she hated by the way so com- yeah not equi- <laughs> not equivalent at all comparing the loss of your parents who have had their time and were elderly to the untimely death the tragic untimely death of someone's wife crazy yeah. and then she uh drops on bobby our pull quote which starts with grieving is a process sometimes courage isn't a value <laughs> so yes the reason i wa- i actually find this quote really interesting kind of enigmatic and I want to examine it without cynicism, which is a challenge given the character that speaks it. But I actually want to think of a countervailing force to courage, not being cowardice, but uh, vulnerability and mm. being willing to uh, depend on people who uh, friends, family, it could be a doctor, someone who is keeping care of you. Um, later, Melfi commends Tony on this different kind of courage effectively like you're willing to dig but tony forgoes that help he leaves therapy and in this other storyline filled with manipulation as well as the supernatural bobby ends up entrusting a lot of himself and his vulnerability to janice so even though i think there's a non-cynical vibe to that at least that notion in this storyline it's the sopranos you got to be careful who you trust excellently said so these scenes continue. They're plopping out kind of rapid fire here at this point. Tony calls. He's done his theatrical performance where he stormed out of the sit down. Calls John, his friend, says, listen, let's not let this get out of hand. We've been doing good business. Counters with five and a half percent. Johnny mentions it to Carmine. Carmine says no. Again, Carmine's fucking boss doesn't even have to say no. Just motions to hang up the phone. And Johnny says not acceptable hang up so this is yet another stalemate they uh have a little conversation here they're going to send joey peeps after tony's appraiser we'll get to that in a later scene vic the appraiser or poor vic the appraiser (laughs) what a rough now there have been some appraisers in my life that i've dealt with that could use a beating like this but i i don't think uh, I, i don't think poor vic uh deserved uh deserved this Chris, could they have used a beating from like both ends, like from you and then from whoever <laughs> sent them? And... <laughs> I love it. I love. I think he says it in both things. I'm only the appraiser. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Great casting again. We talked about that recently too. That they're they're casting for these little small, yes, one or two scene roles are perfect. just perfect every time. This uh. This morbidity that is exhibited by Bobby, who we feel for, we are starting to see the negative effect, though, on the Bacala kids. They are up at night talking about ghosts and still being able to smell their mother's hair and talking about Karen. So this is this is not good. This is what's tricky about this situation. And again, it's the great complexity that the show loves to put out is Janice is using low manipulation to, to accomplish something that is in the long run actually going to be better for Bobby and his kids, even though it involves bringing Janice into their lives, which is 
arguably a net negative. But Correct. Bobby Bobby does need to climb out of this this state that he's in eventually. So uh, and, and this is probably the biggest reason. It would be one thing if it was just poor, fat, lonely Bobby by himself watching TV in his bedroom or something. But it's it's you know he's got these two kids that need a dad, especially if Janice is going to be coming around. So. <laughs> I just want to give a quick shout out to the kids. They're great. I mean, yeah, I love the acting. That it's sort of awkward, but that also fits. Like how it's there's something emotional but strange. I mean, I actually I'm actually sort of devastated by the line of being able to smell her hair. Yeah. Um, other lines I think are really funny. The way they're delivered. Why did he get her a cake? She died. Always gets me. Um, <laughs> And as long as, again, we're in the supernatural, I guess to calm his sister down, Bobby Jr. is saying there's nothing to be scared of. Go to bed. Great shot when Sophie walks out that he pulls the covers up to his eyes like Kilroy. He's like terrified (laughs) that his mother's coming back to haunt him because maybe he did something bad. I don't know. I loved that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they they planted in that scene. They say, I think the kid that that uh, Sophia says said uh, Nick Gilardi, I think, is the kid. I, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But Nick Gilardi, Nick Gilardi says mommy's ghost is going to haunt us. OK. Mm. If you say so, kid. <laughs> Cut to Paulie and Johnny. This scene, uh, they're walking down this. I love the way this the lighting in this alley, they did a very nice job. Go just go back and watch it. It's just, I don't know. The scene just was visually much more interesting than it had any right to be. Uh, <laughs> Johnny and Polly were walking down this, this empty alley and looks like the back of a park or something. And uh, we're old friends. They're getting along. Good, good. Uh, Polly's just trying to bring good relations between the family as he always did and always will. Oh yes. What a, uh, what a Samaritan. Yeah. Uh, what is Johnny's game here telling him if this gets bad, there could be a change? Because if there is a change, it certainly ain't going to be Paulie in the big seat. Uh, <laughs> so Johnny is uh, really, really working Paulie bad here. This is not not looking flattering to Paulie Walnuts here. Paulie insinuates it, you know, no matter who's in charge, if it's me, God forbid. <laughs> Wonderful delivery there by Tony Sirico or whoever. Well, you know, Johnny Sack is a strategist, right? So yeah. he's been pumping Polly for information the entire time that Polly was in jail. Now that he's out, I think Johnny Sack is just reaffirming that he still has a man inside Tony's crew should he need it. And if that means like pumping up Polly in such a way that makes Polly feel important, great. Of course, you know, Johnny knows that Polly would never be the head of that family, but <laughs> You know, in case he needs to make a move against Tony, he needs to know maybe that he has somebody who can get close to Tony easily mm. without it having to be a New York guy. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I like that theory. That's good. Uh, my only note on the scene, it is brief, as I recall, is Johnny Sack is really good at keeping things close to the vest. Polly Walnuts also tries to do that, but he's not he's not good at it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't know if. Yeah, maybe it would just would never be a thing. Maybe Polly Walnuts would be good for the big chair because he'd be way easier to control than Tony. Mm. But whatever right. it is. Oh, interesting, Paul. Yeah, I, I honestly, it's, it's just a, a thought that I had. I don't know. But going back to what Jordan said at the top of the episode about how instead of mortal danger right around the corner, there's something building here. In this scene, it's short. We don't, we're not getting into specific stuff, but it's just enough for me to go, oh, boy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, but Paul, good good point. I mean, very good. Johnny Sack being a strategist here, 
while we, the viewer, think Paulie is the boss of New York is ridiculous. Wouldn't New York love that? New York would love it if Polly was the boss of uh, Jersey, I should say. He would that they they would adore that. Yeah, very easily manipulated because you just stroke his ego. And if he if he ever did buck up for any reason, New York could crush them. But right. that's yeah, that's funny. Ah, very good, Paul. Tony goes to juniors looking for Svetlana. And this uh this woman <laughs> who is there for, as juniors nurse is unreceptive, sitting there reading the paper. I have a question. Yeah. I have never caught it in subtitles. And someone who's listening to the show right now can yell at me. Is this woman's name? I have three options for you. Is this woman's name Bronca, Blanca, or Bronco? What is her name? <laughs> That's really funny. I, when I wrote, you know, I've, I, I, I wrote it in my notes as Bronca. B-R-A-N-C-A, but I don't know. And I, definitely, and I definitely had the thought when I wrote it, like, is it, is it Blanca? Is it? Yeah. So that's really funny. It's never, so, it's, it's never pr- pronounced clearly enough. That no, it. it's never, it never is. I <laughs> guess it must be Bronca. That makes the most sense. I am a huge Street Fighter fan. So I was hoping for Blanca. Um, <laughs> and then I, I could swear that just joking around that Tony said Bronca when he walked in, but I, I guess not. The subtitle is also possible. It. It's yeah. also possible that Tony did a just mispronounced it, which is <laughs> on purpose. Also very right, funny. Yeah. Uh, Junior comes in with a great line. Yes. <laughs> did you offer my nephew anything? I'm I'm a registered nurse, not, not a maid. Oh, uh, did you offer him an, an aspirin? aspirin? <laughs> <laughs> and then mutters cunt as he's walking <laughs> into the next room. Oof. Junior fucking delivers every time. I don't care what it is. He's just the man from from Shakespeare to cunt. It's great. It's just great. He sits down with Tony. These competency hearings, the final ruling on whether or not Junior is competent to stand trial after his head injury is coming up this Friday. And he's he's worried about it. What are they going to do if it doesn't if it fails? He's got shaving cream all over his face. Tony notices the lighting up there, fucking lighting upstairs. So there's the there's the truth about the competency, by the way, yeah. is that that's that's our next clue as to where that's at. Mm. Yeah, little little signs here, little, little things signs. popping up. The strategy is if this doesn't work, the jurors are next. We'll see. Carmela is talking with Janice here. They're talking about Janice is expressing herself, the fact that God forbid I come between him and his ideal idealized dead wife, Carmela. Karen was a wonderful person. AJ comes down and Carmela tells him that he needs to be at Sunday dinner, that Bobby and uh, Bobby and Sophia are going to be there. And he's arguing, he wants to be with his girlfriend, Devin. And Carmela says, these kids just lost their mom. You can be without Devin and your friends for one night. And AJ gives one of the funniest lines ever, which is, well, we were supposed to study, but I guess you don't care about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So funny. We see what his studying is later in the episode, by the way. Very funny. Yeah, very uh, good. <laughs> but anyway, he needs to be around on uh, Sunday. So we're advancing the plot here. Uh, Janice is getting this off her chest. Cut to Joey Peeps chasing Vic the appraiser. This is round one <laughs> for Vic. Uh, real straightforward. They they do what they have to do. I'm only the appraiser. From now on, you work for Carmine. You're going to show up, et cetera, et cetera. So they intimidate him. 
And then we, you know, they're, they're moving this along here at a good pace. We cut right to Satrials. We're getting the reaction. Vic is scared. Tony says it's a bluff. They want in on a going thing. They're not, they don't want to start their own operation. They just want a piece of what I've got set up. Yeah. And then I love this little contrast here. Tony talked about impulse control. Uh, and uh, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to go ballistic, but then almost like, you know, fucking goes out and beats somebody up for honking the horn outside of Satchel's. Don't yeah. show up, people that fucking horn will show up his fucking ass. Great shit. Yeah, it's, I think you're right, Chris. It's a mix. Also, both Tony and Silvio have the presence of mind in this scene to not talk about this stuff in front of Polly. Yes. Right. Remember, they bring it back later and then. Mm-hmm. Silvio says we're talking about fucking Paulie here, but the e both of them they both mm. clammed up. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tony asks about Beansy, a character we haven't seen in a little while. If he's down in Miami, if he ever runs into Little Carmine, Tony's considering bringing a character we've not met before. We're going to meet him later on, Little Carmine. I have a great theory on why Little Carmine is the way he is, but we're going to talk about it when we get there. He uh, asks about Beansy. They're going to look into it, reach out to Beansy. And then Sunday dinner, I got to say, I, I don't know if the moment itself is enough to qualify for a food moment in the. Uh, oh, sure it is. <laughs> maybe it is. But fuck, those stuffed artichokes look terrific. Hey, look, I'm not eating a cactus. All right. <laughs> and yeah, they have this funny. This is classic Soprano Sunday dinner fun here. Uh, the kids are there. Bobby's there. Uh, AJ is acting out and making little, you know, Bobby Jr. laugh and talking about cactus. Yeah. And... My favorite exchange is Hugh and AJ. Hugh says, if you don't like artichokes, you're not Italian. To which AJ <laughs> says so stupidly, oh, what? So Mike Piazza eats nothing but artichokes? <laughs> Stupid fucking idiot. Yeah. yeah, he's a knucklehead. He is I, a real fucking knucklehead. Yeah. I love this. I love the... I also I love that line. I love the sweetness of when Bobby says to I think his his kid, "How would you like it if the Oriental kids were making fun of you?" Right? Because <laughs> we don't we don't use the term Oriental very right. much anymore. But Bobby doesn't mean anything by it. Right? He's just thinking of like Chinese kids and actually doesn't want his son to think that way. Mm-hmm. So him saying it and trying to urge his son to be kinder it, i just i love that it is i really sweet. do too yeah i i think that is a very sweet moment <laughs> and uh, aj just being a real typical teenage brat in the scene he was specifically asked not to invite his girlfriend over she shows up in the middle of dinner carmella yeah. already staring daggers at aj mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah he couldn't just follow the instruction he had to he had to have Devin over, which, you know, I get it to be that age and you want it. You have a new hot girlfriend and you want to be around her all the time. I, I, I understand it, but I certainly I'm um, unfortunately at the age where I sympathize more with Carmela than AJ. <laughs> which is, makes me feel old as fuck, but I get it. Little side note here. I just had a thought of little Asian kids making fun of Italians. And as an Italian, that really makes me laugh. Like, <laughs> just like, what would their what would their stereotype of us be that's really funny anyway uh <laughs> i would i would i would do it right now but it would offend many <laughs> <laughs> that's great i love when hugh tries to tell this story about who he ran into and <laughs> and she just cuts him right off i'll say i'll, I'll spare you connie francis <laughs> 
just doesn't she can't give this man a moment of joy in, in conversation it's really fucking funny uh cut to beansy we see beansy he's looking well uh wheelchair bound he'll you know richie april crippled him for life unfortunately but he's uh he's looking he's looking in his element down there in miami and he's gonna set up a meeting with little carmine and Tony instructs him, you know, don't make it seem like I asked, like you have to happen to run into him. So Tony's Tony's doing very well, his own strategizing here. We're going to see how that all pays off, but he's working it. And then we see what AJ's studying is as uh, Carmilla asks where he went. And anatomy. He's studying anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> I love just so well directed that, she, you know, she knocks on the door and then like by the time she's opening it, they're just both sitting down in separate spots. Very funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just just opening the book. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. With like the hip with the heavy breathing and all we were studying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, Carmela is not having it. She calls in the kids, by the way, risky move, having some idea what might have been going on in there and bringing the kids up with you. But that's <laughs> uh, anyway, she opens the door and, and insists that AJ find them a game and Carmela just it's like, please, these kids just lost their mom. So, of course, this idiot picks out a Ouija board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is it in it's in the same scene they start to play it or is there like a cutaway and they come back? I forget. I think there is a cutaway, actually. I think we might cut to like downstairs and oh, Tony okay. is checking in with Silvio. Right. 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 Uh, right. About the trip. And so it's a pretty quick intersplicing, but we cut away and come back. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, I think it was one of my favorite shots in the episode is um, so they they initially just do some bullshit Ouija board thing. And of course, the, the poor Baca Bacalieri kids are uh, especially Sophia, very interested in her mom's ghost specifically. Devin is uncomfortable with this. Uh, AJ yeah. is kind of kind of excited by this because he's got his little wicked streak. And then the camera does the Tim Burton Beetlejuice pan in towards AJ. <laughs> how about we how about we try to contact the dead for real? <laughs> I was like, I was like, this is wickedly fun. I like this. Yes, he's being such a shit here, but it is, it is darkly funny to watch. And the, the, and the camera's funny. It actually does the zoom in on him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think seances are bullshit. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they come from the spiritualist era of the mid nineteenth century, and they were really popularized and monetized in America and Europe, respectively, after the Civil War and the First World War. You can probably guess why, because after the outbreak, the unprecedented outbreak of violence and barbarism, people wanted to speak to their dead relatives. And AJ, like people, were willing to help them do that at the to the hefty tune of, I don't know, what, a month, two months, three months salary at the time. And so, yeah, it's kind of like that thing playing out here. But maybe the worst thing that really comes out of this dinner is not AJ being an asshole, but probably Janice getting her wonderful, awful idea. Yeah based on what AJ did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, though, uh, I will say this, and I, I know we'll we'll talk more about it probably later in this uh, recording, but the, the last time we saw a psychic, even though he was not using a Ouija board, was when Paulie went to go visit the psychic in Nyack <laughs> um, in From Where to Eternity, Season 2, Episode 9, and that had real results. Yeah. So even though I agree with you, Paul, spiritism is bullshit and seances are bullshit in the sopranos not the first time we'll talk about this episode uh sorry not the last time um 
there's something there. Something real is there, at least in the world of this show, if yeah. not in our world. Well, what I think that the mysticism in The Sopranos suggests is that even for those of us who are hardened against either religion or spirit, spiritism and all this other stuff that we're talking about, all of us know at least somebody, if not us ourselves personally at some point, we know someone who has experienced something that is unexplainable for so, some reason or another. And I think The Sopranos doing that is a way to have that element of life because it really does a good job of replicating different things about life. And yeah, so I think, uh, I think, I think it's important. I think it's an important touch for the show actually in the grand scheme of it all. AJ. Well, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to interrupt just one more time. I'm sorry. Um, I don't want to give the listener the impression that I believe in seances or that I really think Ouija boards contact the dead or something like that. But I, we're going to talk later in the episode about one one of the final scenes of this episode. We do get a spiritual manifestation, and I'm not entirely unsure that that comes from a result of this seance. The, the bullshit one in AJ's bedroom could possibly have conjured that spirit that mm. comes later. So I there's something to this that is more than just AJ having fun. Do you know what I mean? Like it goes sure. on a little too long if that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So he's doing this seance. He's insisting everybody keep their eyes closed. He nudges the table with his knee and Bobby laughs. AJ, that was you. And uh, AJ, just shut up, you know. And uh, how come you, how come, I love Bobby giving AJ all this sass. How come you, how come he's only talking to you? Captain Jacobus, by the way. How come only Captain Jacobus is talking to you? Because uh, I'm the oldest and closest to the afterlife. I love the little shots of Devin stifling laughs and smirks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of Tony and AJ in this scene, actually. Yeah, yeah, this is funny. Sad, but funny. He sees a gray mist, specks of light. That's what I see, too. <laughs> and then, these of poor, course, these poor fucking kids. I know. Yeah, Ugh. they they just they have it bad for so, so many reasons. One, they get bullied by AJ. Two, they lost their mom. Three, Janice. And uh, then, <laughs> <laughs> and then it all descends into absolute screaming chaos when AJ squeezes the sponge at the exact right moment. The can the table gets knocked over. The candle goes out. Darkness, chaos. You hear everyone coming up the stairs. Door open. This is your idea of fun. <laughs> he just started freaking out. Asshole, asshole hits him a couple times. Bobby, you know Bobby's disciplining his son. This is so tough. I'd be mortified if I were Carmela. So, you know, I'm so embarrassed, they say. Tony kicks Devin out, gives AJ a smack upside the head. I love that, Chris. Did you, did you guys see? It's like a resigned, why do I even bother smack? Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> this fucking kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> other, I'm sorry, Chris, perhaps you were right about to go there. But other important thing here is that Janice goes to comfort Sophia. No traction. Sophia mm. wants her father to comfort yeah. her, of course. Runs yeah. right over to him, yep. And um, <laughs> Bobby gives a very funny line. This this has such an air of truth to it, by the way. It's just such, it took me back to like when you're at a party with a bunch of other kids you don't know and something fucked up happens and parents have to get involved. But I love when Bobby says, you want to know something? He locked me in the garage at the guy with the ponytails house. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved that line in that moment. And uh, Bobby's sad delivery of, it's part of growing up. Aww. Bobby. 
but yeah, this, uh, this, anything, any last thoughts about this whole seance sequence before we move on? Uh, well, for me, it's only that the, the seance, the, the seance is, is interrupted. Uh, again, I know it's silly. It's Captain Jacobus. He's a sea captain. Jesus Christ, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the initial, the initial calling out from that Ouija board was, was the little girl asking for her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that do believe in Ouija boards, and I, I'm not saying they're real, uh, people that do believe in the power of Ouija boards believe these are basically open telephone lines, right? Like mm. waiting around for the payphone to ring, right? Mm. So even though when they're all holding hands around the candle, he's talking about made-up Captain Jacobus, the initial call-out to Karen's spirit could have sent out some kind of reverberation into the so-called world of the psychic, and it's her spirit that is circling. So the fact that they break that chain of the seance, their hands are released, the candle is guttered out, the table is knocked over, in the darkness for the brief moment, the mother's spirit could be there and follows the children home. Is that a little bit much for The Sopranos, which is not ostensibly a show about the supernatural? Yes, it is too much. But it's also in the recipe of the script. It, there's something to it. And, mm. and, and the writers want you to believe in it a little bit. And, mm. and we're going to have to revisit it twice again in this episode. Very good. Cut to round two. Ding, ding. Vic getting uh, chased by <laughs> much more portly, <laughs> much more portly Vito. Getting a, a much, a much worse beating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get your appraising shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is just funny stuff. Poor Vic, but it, it's, it's done in such a way that you don't have to feel too bad for him. You can enjoy it. And uh, so he's just getting bounced around like a ping pong ball between the New York and New Jersey wise guys who are fighting over him. That's nothing compared to what we're going to do, Victor. (laughs) So get your praise and shit. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) And uh, cut back to Bobby and Janice. They've just seen a movie. They're sitting in what looks to be a shopping mall. They seem to have had a nice time, but the conversation quickly turns sour. Janice wants to bring up the cake, the graveyard. Janice brings up the mud in the cemetery and like Bobby's malaprop here, mud. Who are you, Marge Hennenbrenner now? Hegenbrenner now? Who, of course, is the C- CSI actress Marge Helgenberger he's referring to. CSI <laughs> being uh, a very popular show at the time. I, pretty much all my friends were watching it. I was maybe the only person in my group of friends that wasn't watching CSI. And Janice finally brings it up, really just going for it here. And Bobby. Uh, has not fully paid the funeral bill. I'm never going to pay him. He added 10 pounds to Karen. She says, this is morbid clinging. She's dead. I'm here. Stalemate, dead end, a car going nowhere. That's what it must feel like for both of them here. Shut the fuck up. You shut the fuck up. So yeah, this, uh, this is Janice finally dropping it. We have a nice time and we end up talking about your dead wife. Thoughts on this uh, strategy here. Well, it's important that we do recognize it as a strategy. I mean, Janice is trying to get through to him in a way that will allow him to accept her and put Karen aside. Uh, listen, Janice is a manipulator. She has a negative effect on everyone in her life. There is something positive to what she's saying. Listen, there is a point where grief can overwhelm one's life and it can become too much. He does need to move on to an extent. I do wish that she was not going about this for selfish reasons because some of what she's saying... Uh, has positivity in it Mm. yeah i I agree i think that you mentioned earlier chris that 
Bobby needs to start to raise up out of this for any number of reasons. And, you know, sadly, what Janice is saying in terms of its baseline is probably true. That he doesn't want to pay the funeral bill because he's latching on to something. I don't think he needs like Janice with her teeth in his face saying this is morbid clinging because um, because <laughs> nobody needs that to stay sane um, <laughs> but uh such is life uh with the sopranos so you know yeah it's all coming out uh complicated but but the real payoff is going to be sadly when bobby ends up blaming himself yeah. and you know bringing janice back into the fold absolutely and then we cut to Tony in his new home theater, listening to uh, I Shot the Sheriff. Gets a call from Svetlana. Unlike Valentina, who all but threw it back at him, she is pleased with her horseshoe brooch that Tony got her. Says, oh, I'm going to keep it. You know, <laughs> diamonds like this. Tony gives her this little parting gift. I love her attitude here. Tony makes another advance and her quotes, these things happen and life moves on. So Tony, once again, turned down by Svetlana. He's not used to rejection. And especially given the reason here and what he's going through in therapy, this feels like a particular indignity for Tony. And he brings up, brings it up in therapy. She game tries to pass it off like he broke up with her and then calls himself on it. You know, this is bullshit. She gave me my walking papers, called me high maintenance, didn't want to prop me up. And this from a bro who walks around on crushes half the time. So Tony's had it. We're going into this big therapy scene here. I'm a miserable prick, and Melfi challenges him. You're no longer interested in changing. No, I guess not. She says, in my professional opinion, you should be in therapy. Tony says, most of the time we just talk about philosophy, the Italians. You gave me some leadership strategies. Tony admits when it goes off track, it's my fault. I understand. But he is... uh, I love this line. I'm a fat fucking crook from New Jersey. Melfi gives him the pitch, which is now that you're no longer having to put out fires, the panic attacks, we can get down to the the real work can begin and we can find out who you are and what you're after in your very short time on this earth. This is a long scene. I don't need to keep going beat by beat through it, but what do you think about this? Uh, This doesn't make me feel good this scene i i don't like it It, it's uh i like it in that it's written and acted beautifully but i don't like it in what it portends for the people involved well it it seems like tony is stopping his therapy for the wrong reasons Mm. right he uh we've spoken about often and the show brings up often the idea of being the strong silent type it was the Mm. title of the previous episode it's something we've been fixated on since the pilot tony feels like he is taking a step towards becoming the strong silent type by getting out of therapy almost as if therapy is the thing that makes him weak but that's Mm. not true it just exposes things that he needs to work on this is like the equivalent of like shooting the messenger right this is not Uh, this I is not that. actually, yeah, this is not actually treating the cause. It's he's just, you know, it's a it's something that's more symptomatic. He can't see the truth, which is that he has to work through these things in therapy, not eliminate the therapy. You can't get rid of the things by getting rid of the therapy. And I, it's a well-written scene. It's a well-acted scene. In my opinion, Melfi kind of lets him go too easy 
but I guess he's done. Mm. Come to your last session. Tony says no. Uh, listen, uh, she, I commend you on your courage. And if you start to feel any of the old feelings, you need to call me. Tony says no fault, no foul. You saved my life in the beginning. Sorry if I came off like an asshole. What happens here? We shake hands. How about a diamond pin? And uh, she extends a hand and he gives her a kiss on the cheek. So ends the therapy of Tony Soprano and Dr. Melfi, one of the core conceits of the show from the beginning. And unlike the incident in season two, uh, beginning of uh, end of one, beginning of two, where Melfi was refusing to see him, this is Tony's doing. We're no spoiler policy show here, but this is potentially the end of uh, <laughs> the end of Melfi on the Sopranos, unless something something changes. And it's it's very unsatisfying. Yeah. Oh, Tony's not ready to be out in the world. And I think we're going to get a, another big hint of that at the end here. Yeah. Oh, and, and selfishly, we're we're not ready for him to be out in the world. We no. we were not ready for therapy to end like the viewer. So they, they've really kind of left us midair. Melfi's reasoning was not just bullshit. That is true. You, you when, when you're dealing with when you establish a new baseline and you get out of a crisis mode, you can start. Now, their therapy is probably doomed for many reasons, one of them being the fact that we've hammered on earlier, which is they can't ever actually get to the root of anything. But Melfi's not wrong when she says once you get out of crisis mode, you can actually get to the real work. That's how therapy works. I've I've done it. (laughs) I agree. And I think I know that I took Melfi to task earlier, but I would like to note that I think that this season she's done some good work particularly maybe pushing Tony closer to this space where they can delve deeper, as she says, and this real work can begin with the deeper work. She said to him in the first episode of this season, she brought up the possibility of giving this up. She's asked him to look, frankly, at the, like in Everybody Hurts, um, a few episodes ago, our episode called Good Intentions, we pulled this apart. Melfi trying to get him to see that he makes his money through usury and graft that he, in the last episode, that he causes suffering, that he hasn't connected to people. I don't know if those deeper questions spooked Tony or if he has just never wanted to go there, but I Mm. certainly agree with with what you guys said. This is an unsatisfying ending to the process. Yep. Sad. So it is sad and it is unsatisfying. We'll, We'll check back in. She does immediately call Elliot, so her, her first reaction is to call her own therapist and guess who's no longer a patient of mine. And then she drops the episode title, Calling All Cars, a, a joking way to essentially say, hey, look out. There's a Tony Soprano on the loose, everybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, an odd line. And, mm-hmm. and that is there. That's the episode title. Mm-hmm. Uh, strange. Now, as far as I know, Calling All Cars is just like when there's like a that's like a that's police radio speak yes yeah yeah calling all cars calling all cars it's meant to be a bulletin from headquarters as so all of you keep an eye out for this whatever i'm about to say calling all cars there's a there's a chase going on on main street and you know that kind of thing so it's funny because it's it's police it's police lingo she's using about a gangster okay is that all it is i no no i think there's more to it it's also a radio signal Um, yeah sending people out for sending a signal out for help and connection. And that's related to uh, what Jordan eloquently framed out when we were discussing the seance, that there's an open Mm. communication here. 
Mm, okay. um, I don't know if that's actually all deliberate, but uh, I do like this bit. It's a short bit, but also it's there's something complicated, it seems, in Melfi's feelings, isn't it? She calls Kupferberg. She gets the voicemail. He mentions in his voicemail message that he has an emergency number. This is not the emergency number. This is Melfi calling her doctor and friend, and the sound of her voice sounds a bit like a weight has been lifted from her shoulders. Mm, yeah. So that that was my reading of that moment. Mm. And also, just thematically, this is an episode where a lot of people are calling out to the universe for help or for answers, and the one who isn't is the one who perhaps needs it the most. <laughs> Tony, so this is yet another example of... Uh, this calling out to the universe, this looking for some kind of something out there that uh, can help because, well, he's on the loose folks. He's been, he's out there. Tony Soprano is done. We'll see. We'll see what happens. There are certain things in life, sounds and images that take you immediately back to a very specific time and place in life, in culture. I don't know that Many things on The Sopranos do this more effectively than seeing Bobby Jr. playing Max Payne and having it interrupted by that bling from AIM. It's like, oh, <laughs> hot, hello, 2002. How are you doing? Uh, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I don't know about Paul. I, I, I got to know Paul a little bit later in life. But I, I remember when I, when I started college, that's where Jordan and I met. Pretty much everyone. That was like the those are like the last few years of Ames' life. AOL Instant yeah. Messenger, uh, and when I was in high school and college, that was the shit. That was basically what I would guess you would say TikTok and Snapchat are to teenagers and college students now. It's it's just the the means of communicating with your peers online, and uh, so I just it just brought me back. It was a big knock of like holy shit, wow, remember all that. I I did. I did have a moment where I sort of missed it because now that we all carry smartphones with us all the time, Mm. you're kind of online all the time, Mm. you know, but like back then it used to be just like you logged into your computer and that's when they could get you. But um, and do you remember that excitement when you were maybe hoping to see somebody and they were offline and then all of a sudden that little thing comes on that shows you they're online. You're like, oh, the person I want to talk to is on. That's just that that excitement is just totally gone. Sure. And going back to what Paul was just saying, uh, it's it's communication. I mean, it's another it's yeah. reaching out. There's someone reaching out to you. Right. And and that could be in a creepy way like it is in this scene. Man, uh, the early Internet was so fun and wild. I hate it. I hate it now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, aim from Vlad six, six, six. nice job nice job janice subtle subtle yeah this is janice at her most dumb and despicable uh (laughs) and she directs him to the cabinet oak cabinet den third shelf who are you rising damp which i mentioned earlier i alluded to earlier but essentially it's a condition where the foundation of your house is rotting so She's she's just being as dark and gross and and evil and satanic as sounding as she can possibly be here. 
Yeah, that is a really unsettling response because there's no way that the kid knows what rising damp is, but it's right. You're reminded of what, like, okay, something rising up maybe from the grave. Like, what is this? Yeah, exactly. And by the way, the cancer rising up and ruining the foundation of the Bacchieri home is Janice, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. If I haven't made that clear. <laughs> but that's funny. They go in there and the Ouija board, his name is 666 in it. <laughs> <laughs> so fuck terrible but effective is what i wrote she got exactly what she wanted out of that and and watching them yep. from from the uh, from from a house down with her binoculars too just just so gross and awful anyway tony's in florida beansy looking good hey i was gonna park there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i love tony with these little jokes and things that he very, does very good isn't it striking that when we last saw Beansy, like his, he was miserable and his whole life had been devastated, but his second act has been good to him, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, look, no, uh, I'm not envious of the being paralyzed part, but all things considered, in, in a way, maybe that got him out of a miserable life and in the, as an ancillary contact of the North Jersey Mafia out of his pizza parlor. Maybe this is, uh, <laughs> the, maybe the back his his later years are going to be a, <laughs> a reprieve of sorts. Well, this would make him the uh, second character that can't use their legs functionally, that it seems happier than Tony. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's also true. 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 That's, a, that's a great pull, Paul. Cut to the trial. We haven't been getting a, a, much of the trial in, in like big chunks, which I like. No one wants to see The Sopranos become a courtroom drama. But uh, we are touching back on Junior's trial and it's decision time. Frankly, they were unmoved by Mr. Soprano's performance. Uh, attorney Melvoyne tries to argue to couch it as a performance. He says, since the incident, I have not had any conversation with Mr. Soprano on a meaningful level. Judge says, feel free to take it up on appeal. Shuts it down immediately. We're not doing this. I did not come this far to shut this trial down. Wants another round of testing. Just not having it. Junior walks out to the car. He's upset. This is this was a potential out for him that's just been ripped from his path. And uh, Bobby is doing their best. We'll get to a juror. We're working very hard. And the car pulls out. But such is the mental competency. And by the way, what a sad irony that he uh, that they initially started this as a way to manipulate the system and the system shuts him down right at a time when there are, are legitimate, he's losing his, his mind. Now, well, whether, whether very, or not- Very, very Sopranos. <laughs> yes, yes. Whether or not that absolves Junior of moral culpability for the chaos and, and misery he's created in his life is something we can debate. But just a fun irony there that he's losing his mind so he doesn't get the amnesty here or the mistrial that he- prompted as an attempt to defraud the government just that's classic sopranos right there very much so janice doing housework quote unquote smoking weed yep, nice. <laughs> bobby calls and oh the way she delivers this oh my god <laughs> while bobby is freaking out on the phone oh god Poor guy. Poor guy. He just has no clue who he's dealing with here. Bobby just is not prepared to deal with Janice Soprano. They were trying to contact Karen on the Wii and the Ouija board. They couldn't go to sleep. Couldn't even handle a Nancy Drew. It was too mysterious. 
<laughs> complete complete murder that line when he says <laughs> so they couldn't handle that it was too mysterious every time yeah. it kills me yeah <laughs> uh janice kind of gives the well uh, without saying i told you so that's her whole energy here is i didn't want to overstep she's a she's a genius uh your single dad and then she gives perhaps the most insightful quote she's capable of giving which i actually like this quote I just hate who's using it and why, but the dead have nothing to say to us. It's our own narcissism that makes us think they, they even care. That's good. That I like. It's a good quote. Well, let's eat something. They decide about a couple places uh, to potentially get food and Janice shuts them down. Here comes the test for Janice, right? Will he eat Karen Zidi? So she goes to the freezer once again, Pulls it out, gives him the look, Karen Zidi, long pause, and he just starts crying and nods. Great acting here. Bobby does such a good job. And like we, I think we mentioned earlier uh, in the season that he just has this ability to cry on command in such convincing fashion. I love Steve Sharipa, just a lovable actor, and uh, he does great here. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So they're going to, so Bobby agrees to eat the Zidi. Cut to Florida. And we are meeting a new character, new character alert, new character alert. This is uh, Carmine Lupertazzi Jr. And boy, boy, <laughs> oh, man. We, we get a great sense of him early on. Uh, I love the, the way he's dressed and the cigar. I appreciate the respect you show me by coming down to me at this time. Uh, let's not blame John. He's a greedy motherfucker. He's a pragmatist, but he's a greedy motherfucker. And then he starts talking. And, and I, I had a, a little bit of a connection i made uh when he starts talking about lewis the whatever's finance minister duh something (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah and then the line it even outshone for sales he's talking like he's he's talking like he's smart but he's mispronouncing things he can't remember other things and i thought but you know the the time this is set in 2002 what's going on with the country post 9-11 america I don't think that I, I I think the fact that Carmine is the way he is with the malapropisms and the and, and the not quite being with it intellectually is a commentary on George W. Bush, the son of a of a well-respected head of state, oh, okay. an elderly head of state who does have the respect of the troops, but he he mispronounces things and uses words in a funny way. I think this is a thinly veiled commentary on George W. That's just my Maybe that's an an opinion or whatever. I don't know how you feel about that. Okay. Well, I mean, sure. Why not? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, the connection to George W. Bush, but it is timely given that this was uh, an important point in his presidency. The next season takes place around the time of the Iraq war, and they do some commentary there as well. Uh, I love Carmine Jr. Uh, the name of the actor is Ray Abruzzo, I believe. Yeah, he's I have to. I have to restrain myself because of getting into spoiler territory, but even right off the bat, he's sort of bringing me so much joy with uh, the dirt or something and this whole, the grim quality of this, however, is that Tony has recently passed up the council of Jennifer Malfi, and he <laughs> is taking up the council <laughs> of Carmine Lupertazzi Jr. This is... This does not seem like a good move, uh, does not seem like a step up. I dare say it's not even a lateral move. Yeah, well said. And and, and I, I fully agree. Again, no spoilers. Obviously, this character is uh, here and is Carmine's son. 
And uh, I immediately want to see more of him after seeing this scene. I'll say that he's a very entertaining uh, character. And uh, Tony mentions that his his position and says that uh, you know if a if a decision is not reached in a business like time frame, my next move will not be conversation. I got it. Message clear, and I guess we're going to find out next episode how and if this played out. Any final thoughts on our first meeting with Carmine Lupertazzi Jr. before we uh, get to the last few beats of this episode here? Uh, yeah, I looked it up just because I was kind of bored and I was interested in what he might have been talking about. And um, apparently this uh, French finance minister he was referring to from history, which I'm going to mispronounce because I'm I'm not a student of history nor someone who speaks French. But the historical figure's name is Nicolas Fouquet, F-O-U-Q-U-E-T, mm. um, I believe Fouquet. And uh, he um, uh, was a very wealthy finance minister for the French crown under Louis XIV. And when Louis XIV realized how much more money Fouquet had than the crown, he had this guy imprisoned and, and executed. Like, there's a light parallel that you could kind of interpret that, you know, is it that Johnny Sack thinks himself above Carmine in some way? It's, it's almost hard to figure out who they're saying Fouquet is in this. Mm. Uh, I, I guess it could be Johnny Sack and his trying to amass wealth and power maybe behind Carmine's back or something. That's almost maybe, and again, we're spoiler free. I don't know. Could it be foreshadowing? I, I truly don't know. But it is interesting that this character of low intelligence actually does bring up something obscure and interesting from French history. Uh, and again, I'm sorry for the mispronunciation of that name. I truly did not know this before looking it up. So forgive me. But um, it was uh, notable. I didn't either. That's cool. I like that. I think we'll have more to say on that at a future date. Let's come back to it. Then we get this scene quickly of Janice and Bobby eating ziti. And this is a very exciting scene. Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about this. First of all, just on, on there's two two levels to look at it here: or the surface and then the the uh, ethereal plane, I guess. Well, <laughs> but on the surface, they're eating the CD. It's quiet. It's somber. They've made a night out of it. They've they've lit some candles. They're eating by candlelight. They're eating silently. Bobby is very slowly savoring every single bite. Good acting here. Uh, Jordan, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this uh, as the the host and and proprietor of the Sopranos podcast, (laughs) but you actually had to point this out to me. I did not notice. Would you like to explain to our listeners if they didn't notice what happens in this scene? And then we'll talk about it. Chris and Paul are the Sopranos experts, so I always know I'm coming in a little bit behind them on every episode because they have seen every episode 10 times. And for some of these, including this one, it's the first time I'm ever seeing the episode. And you're they're eating the ZD. The candles are lit, which should remind us of the lit candles from AJ's seance earlier in the episode. And the only thing on the table other than the candles and the ZD is a red wine glass that starts off just left center of the frame. It's perfectly still in the beginning of the scene. And then the glass moves first right and then left and readjusts right again. No one is touching it. And the liquid in the glass is sloshing around as if someone is moving it. And it's being moved just a little, little bit. So little, in fact, that you could kind of miss it. But I assure you, Sopranos fans, it is unmistakable. Just go back and take a look. That glass moves. I caught it. And then I looked it up online and other people had caught it too. And then I brought it to Chris and Paul's attention and they were like, get the fuck out of here. And then they saw it and they're like, oh shit, it is there. 
blew my fucking mind. I must have seen this episode dozens of times and I'd never seen that. And when Jordan mentioned it, I looked at it and holy shit, it blew my brain out. Same here. And this is not an oscillation, right? This is like, a, it's a Ouija board move, right, Jordan? It's like back, forth, It is back a Ouija a board bit. move. It's it's actually like the plan shit on the Ouija board. Sure is. So wild. Just what, what, what that entails and what that, what kind of thought that it's, 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 Perhaps in a in a way, it's an even more jaw dropping moment than Big Pussy in the Mirror for me, because sure, ah, uh, it's just crazy. The spirit of Karen Bakleyary moving that glass. Mm. So we are now going to have to start creating a little pile that starts with, I guess it starts with From Where to Eternity, the first really supernatural episode, mm. where we have Chris's vision when he is in his coma. Combine that with Paul, the psychic and Nyack. Add to that the image of Big Pussy in uh, the mirror in Prussia Lavushka, and now the moving of the wine glass, where we are starting to stack up in Soprano Land some things that are not easily explainable mm-hmm. and do contribute to at least this idea that there is someone on this writing staff, probably David Chase, who firmly believes that there is an afterlife that you can be contacted from beyond and is putting evidence on camera. Well said. Uh, yeah, I am going to start keeping a list of this. If this subject is going to bear uh, a lot more discussion too, as the show goes on, we'll find a good time to dissect all of it in its entirety. Perhaps if we do a series retrospective, that is going to be a good topic, but uh, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Jordan. And that, I just and, and and to other fans of the show, perhaps who may be listening, who have watched this uh, before, either they're watching it on your first time or you've watched it dozens of times, like like some of us, you will you will always catch new things. It's that's one of the things that's so good about the show is, I mean, Paul and I have watched it dozens of times as a series and we I still didn't catch didn't see this wine glass thing. And I still catch little things, little sound effects. It's just it's so rich, it's so great. And it's one of the things just pause from breaking the episode down to just rave about how much we love this show as if you couldn't tell already anyway yeah just one one little you know. addition um even though that is the only ghost in this episode not the most terrifying specter in this episode we're going to get to another dream sequence in a moment that i think is i think is the scariest thing i've seen on the show it is it's legitimate it legitimately is creepy if you're watching it alone it's it's like you just don't i it, and then even the fact that it happens in a foreign environment, we're going to get to it right now. So I'm just, let's just talk about it. The fact that it happens right, so while Tony dream, is in a hotel room. Sequence number two. Yeah. 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 And, and he wakes up and it's like, he, there's almost no reprieve from the dream creepiness because he gets up, goes into this bathroom with this hellish red light. And ugh. anyway, yeah. So this dream sequence, he's being taken to this house out in the country, Ralphie and Tony is dressed like a, I don't know how else to describe it, like a 19th century Italian immigrant coming to do a mason job. He is speaking in this Italian accent. Hello, hello. I'm here for the mason job. You know, speaking English. And then that is followed by this ghastly, ghoulish uh, silo- female silhouette that comes down the stairs. You can't see it. The lighting is gorgeous, but also really terrifying. Tony can't make it out. It just stands there staring at him for an extremely uncomfortable length of time. Tony goes to open the door and wakes up. Yeah. 
in in Sopranos discourse online that I've found people refer to this specter as the lady on the stairs, mm. all in caps, uh, all, all the, the first letter of each word in caps, the lady on the stairs. To me, the uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here as far as interpretation. I think one interesting aspect is we have normal North Jersey Tony in the first dream. And we have this Tony talks about their uh, grandfather was a grandfather who were stonemasons from Italy who came over, built the church. He talked about this in the first episode and then ran it by AJ again a few episodes ago, uh, watching too much television, I think. So there's that connection. But to me, the fact that he knows speaking English in this episode speaks to a fear deep inside Tony that now that he's been cut loose of Melfi, he has no means of communicating what's going on inside of his dreams, inside of himself and inside of his mind. It just speaks to a uh, the barrier that he now has between what he is seeing and experiencing and what he can communicate because he has no outlet for it. So that, that's my interpretation on the mm-hmm. fact that he can't speak English. But the silhouette, I mean, it could represent so many things. Obviously, your mind has to go right to Livia, right? The, the, of course. the, the haunted yeah. specter of the mother that looms over him and is going to be there haunting him, whether he's in therapy or not, and he's never going to be able to get to it. Mm. Good point. Uh, uh, certainly, the, I guess Olivia isn't the only woman that comes up, but for very important reasons, she's the first one that comes to mind. Uh, Chris, I hadn't thought of that particular interpretation with Tony not being able to communicate following this severing the connection with Melfi, but the first shot in the show is Tony troubled by an image of the feminine. And here is once again, this distressing dream of him. We don't know what this figure is. We know it's a woman and him trying to get a little closer and it great, very realistic dream element. The moment when the dream is maybe about to pay off is when it ends. Mm. (laughs) Um, That's always Um, when I wake up. Yeah, Um, seriously. So, yeah. um, But certainly significant in that this is the thing that happens in this episode is that Tony leaves therapy. Um, so, so Chris, I, I think that certainly lends credence to your theory here. I think part of it is also where he's having the stream. He's in Miami. Um, he's, he's run away from his problems, kind of. I, I mean, I know he's there to talk to Carmine Jr., but also like Miami is like, it's not the place of his business. It's a vacation city. It's like not at all serious. So it's like you try to run away from your problems, but you can't run away from yourself. You're going to dream about that thing that's bothering you until you can actually turn and confront it. And until you confront it, it's going to remain in the shadows. That lady on the stairs will never actually come into the light until he actually goes to therapy and brings her into the light. Until then, she is just going to be a specter that haunts him. And you can't run from that. Mm. And just kudos to the way the whole thing is shot. In some ways, I personally just feeling feelings watching this the way it's constructed and edited and you got the fast hazy camera i like to call it uh effect as ralphie's walking through and that shot of ralphie just kind of sneering almost really this dream makes me feel more claustrophobic like i want to get the fuck out of it even more than the first one i was like this makes me feel awful i want this to stop there's also uh I kind of blink and you miss it. The first image there, one of the first images there is that uh, is having been brought to this house. There's an image of woman's legs. It Mm. could be Gloria. And then there's Ralph, both of whom are dead. Mm. This house that they're bringing him to, is this a house of the dead? Is the inhabitant of that house, Livia, 
who is kind of like the the queen of the dead in Tony's mind? Is this bringing him closer into that thing that who knows may may kill him or lead to his downfall? There's something very uh, almost mythological about this sequence, right? Mm. It, it has like this old lore feel to it that Tony is not even just Tony in this scene, that somehow he is all of his ancestors and that this is like the downfall of his house, almost as if it's Atreus and not Soprano. You know what I mean? Mm. Lot there. There's so much there. I love that breakdown, guys. And then uh, he gets out to the balcony, looks out over Miami Beach, calms himself, breathes a little bit. We play out to surf in USA. Any final thoughts on calling all cars, this ending, anything else you want to say before we head out and uh, get ready to do the final two episodes? Um, I, I would only say that I, I really love this episode. Yeah. I, I really was surprised uh, because if I had read a synopsis as to what the episode was about, I think I would find it a little off-putting that I wasn't getting into the the nitty gritty or the meat of the whole New York plot and like maybe something exciting with like somebody getting like assassinated or something like that. Some kind of big episode that would really like lead us off into the fireworks of what the last two episodes of a season usually are. But instead what I got is this really rich tapestry episode dealing with dreams and the supernatural and these horrors that live inside of Tony's head, which for me are kind of becoming the things that I watch the show for. So I think Calling All Cars is going to end up being one of my favorite episodes this season because I think the reason why I'm watching is almost changing uh, as I'm watching the show. Like the show is leading me to become a more mature viewer. Like Melfi, the show itself is like asking more of me so I don't plateau into a complacent place of just wanting uh, easy titillation and violence and fun, good character scenes. It's still going to give me all that, but now the show is starting to pull. It's starting to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, but how about a dream sequence? Hey, how about another one? <laughs> and, you're, and, and you, the viewer, you're going to assign the meaning because that's what's more important. And there are some viewers that can't quite make that jump, but the ones who can, uh, we think about it forever. Well said. Uh, I agree. I think the show is growing and changing. And of course, it, like, why, why isn't this the last episode of the show? It started with him going to therapy and now it, it ended, but we're still watching. We cannot stop. This mm. is too interesting. It's too compelling. It's too rich. And it is growing. It is pretty brutal. I love this episode. I frankly love it even more. It's, I've grown in appreciating it in the last hour and a half hearing you guys speak on it because um, you guys are keen and it's so rich. You know, this last sequence, as Jordan said, these things are going to dog Tony even if and when he tries to run. So this is one of the few instances in which a beach boy song plays and I don't want to sing along. That's almost never happened to me in my life. Uh, but what Tony is going through is so brutal that I can't join in the fun. Of course, that ref that reflects how he cannot join in the fun. So it gives me this uneasy feeling, as does the fact that earlier in this episode, when Tony leaves therapy, Melfi says something to him to the effect of, if you have any of the old feelings, you need to call me. I think Tony has a full-blown panic attack coming out of this dream. Doesn't oh, yeah. seem like he's going to call her. It seems like he's going to go it alone. He's going to try to do the strong silent type thing. So all in all, this is an uneasy feeling it's leaving me with. But once again, as Jordan said, I got to keep watching. Am I, have I been seduced by a sociopath? Do I just need to keep on seeing it to dig into what these horrors are like? I don't know. But 
uh, I remain intrigued by the forwards and again, wouldn't dare look away. Amen to that. I agree. I, I am talking about this season. I've always felt we, we've talked about this at length. I'm not going to delve into it, but we, uh, Paul and I in particular, because we've seen it before, I've talked a lot about how season four may not have hit us right the first time we watch it. And one of my favorite things about our podcast is that we've had a chance to elicit why as I get older and as I watch it more, season four actually steps up in a big way. This has been very cool. I love this episode. I am with you, Jordan. This this is going to be hard one to top for a favorite in the retrospective, although I have a feeling that at least one of the next two might uh, try to top it. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, but I can't right. wait. Uh, coming up next is Eloise. That's the penultimate episode. Historically, penultimate episodes have been very action-packed explosive we'll see if that pattern continues or if they swerve us and i can't wait to break it down with you gentlemen i'm chris tomato i'm paul mancini and i'm jordan hugh we will see you next time for eloise der something I got myself a girl.